0: Just prior to the publication of this issue, the FDA approved direct-to-inject administration of cabotegravir-rupivirine, or Cabinuva without an initial oral lead-in period. This is an update from the information Dr. Tanya Ponwanson presents in this issue and means that as of March 24, 2022, it is appropriate to consider initiation of injectable long-acting cabotegravir-rupivirine without first giving pills of the drugs to confirm tolerability. Learners are advised to review the updated Cabenuva prescribing information for additional guidance. This eHIV review podcast is presented by DKB Med Radio.
1: Long-acting preparations remove one of the most common drug-drug interactions that we see with rilpivirine proton pump inhibitors. Because we're injecting and not taking any oral pills, don't have to worry about the stomach, anything bypassing it, so great.
0: Clinical uses of long acting injectable ART. Welcome to EHIV Review. Long acting injectable antiretroviral therapy. It's expected to improve clinical outcomes and reduce viral transmission. But how does it work in practice? Which patients are eligible to receive it? Is it effective as pre exposure prophylaxis? What does the promise of long acting ART actually mean in the clinic? That's what we're here to talk about today with our guest, Dr. Tanya Pon Wansum, Senior Infectious Disease Consultant at Yong Consulting in Bangkok, Thailand. For Dr. Wansom's disclosures and additional CME information, please go to our website, ehivreview.org, and select the Volume 7, Issue 6 link. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of EHIV Review. Dr. Wansom, thank you for joining us today.
1: Thank you so much for having me on today. I'm really honored to be here.
0: We've got a lot to cover, so let's start right in with our first learning objective. Identify patients who would be eligible to switch to long-acting capotegravir and rapivirine. So, take us to the clinic, if you would please, Dr. Wansom, with a patient scenario.
1: The first patient scenario is we have a 30-year-old woman with HIV who has taken antiretroviral therapy with tenofovir, lamivudine, and dolutegravir, or TLD, for three years. She has an undetectable viral load, and she has no known resistance mutations identified on her HIV genotype, which was taken prior to starting antiretroviral therapy. She is currently taking an injectable hormonal contraceptive for pregnancy prevention, but she's on no other medications. She has just heard about long-acting cabotegravir and rilpivirine, and she's interested in possibly switching. and asks if you could tell her more about this option.
0: This patient, who's been doing well on oral therapy wants to consider switching to a long-acting regimen. Now, there's only one long-acting regimen currently approved. That's cabotegravir and rapivirine. I would think before you can actually advise her, the first thing you need to determine is, would she be eligible to take these drugs?
1: Yes, that's correct. It's always a great idea to just look at the eligibility criteria and make sure that she fits that criteria.
0: Uh, You wrote about that in your newsletter issue about the patient selection criteria for this long-acting injectable regimen. Uh, So let me ask you to review that for us, if you would, please, and apply it to the patient you presented.
1: Sure. So first of all, all patients who want to switch to this regimen must be virally suppressed. And so that would be HIV RNA below the lower limit of detection or below 50 copies per milliliter.
0: Suppressed, but for how long? Is there a specific time limit?
1: Yes. In trials, patients were on ART for a minimum of 20 weeks prior to switching to the injectable regimen, but this amount of time was chosen arbitrarily just to ensure that patients were stably virally suppressed. For ART-naive patients, many patients suppress quickly, but others can take up to six months for viral suppression. The median time, most are undetectable within three months. So the patient I presented here, she's been on ART for three years. So, she meets this requirement for being on a stable regimen with viral suppression. Another criteria is that the patient must have no history of treatment failure and no known or suspected resistance mutations to either cabotegravir or rilpivirine.
0: Resistance mutations to cabotegravir or rilpivirine. As you said, this patient doesn't have any. But what would be some of the more common mutations clinicians might find that might lead to resistance?
1: Let's take Rilpivirine first. For Rilpivirine, common mutations that lead to resistance include K101E or P, Y181C, I or V, E138A, K or Q, and then the combination of L100I plus K103N. And you need to have the two together for resistance. Switching over to Kabatiravir, the most common mutations are E138K, q 148 rk and N155H. The combinations of E138K plus Q148K and then also the combination of Q148R and N155H confer the greatest reductions in susceptibility to cabotegravir. So respectively, the first combination is 81-fold decrease and the second combination is a 61-fold decrease in
0: susceptibility. So for eligibility, she needs to have no known resistance mutations, and she's good on that. Plus, no failures with any of her previous HIV treatments.
1: She's had no prior failures. She was started on tenofovir, lamivudine, and dolutegravir. So that's the regimen that she's currently on, and she stayed on it through the whole three years. It's worked well for her this whole time, and she's maintained an undetectable viral load.
0: In your presentation, you noted she's on a medication to avoid becoming pregnant. Are there any considerations with long-acting cabotegravir and rapivirine regarding birth control, or, or for that matter, pregnancy?
1: So regarding interactions between long-acting ART and contraceptives, co-administration of these two have not been studied specifically, but based on how the drugs are metabolized, there's very low potential for any drug-drug interaction. The injectable formulation that she's on, which is medroxyprogesterone, the depot formulation, it's metabolized by CYP3A4, but cabotagravir has no impact on CYP3A4 substrates. And then rilpivirine as well, it doesn't inhibit or induce CYP3A4 at clinically relevant concentrations. So in HPTN077, they did look at participants who were taking contraception and tried to do some PK work on them. And so they found that there were no effects of long-acting cabotegravir on injectable contraception or vice versa. And actually, women on oral contraceptives had a slightly lower cabotegravir peak, but other PK parameters that are linked to efficacy were unaffected. Basically, the take-home message is there is not enough data on the use of these medications during pregnancy to adequately assess any drug-associated risk of birth defects and or miscarriage.
0: What about if she changes her mind about motherhood? She stops her contraception and decides she wants to get pregnant.
1: So cabotagravir use in pregnant women has not been evaluated and it's not part of the indication, mostly because there's just not enough data on the use of these medications during pregnancy to adequately assess drug-associated risk of birth defects and miscarriage. However, you can advise the patient that more data is actually coming So there's an impact network study being designed of long-acting cabotegravir and rilpivirine for virologically suppressed pregnant women with HIV. And also the HPTN 084 open label extension period allows women who become pregnant to stay on long-acting injectable PrEP. So there will be more information coming soon on the use of these medications in pregnancy specifically. For right now, it's good to know that a pregnancy registry exists for women who get pregnant while they're taking injectable cabotegravir and rilpivirine, And this registry monitors not just these patients, but all patients who are taking antiretrovirals during pregnancy. So you can find out more information about the registry and also register your patients who are taking antiretrovirals during pregnancy at apregistry.com.
0: Medications that may be contraindicated in a patient considering long acting cabotegravir and ropivirine. What do clinicians need to be aware of?
1: So, first, a little good news. Long acting preparations remove one of the most common drug drug interactions that we see with ropivirine, proton pump inhibitors. Because we're injecting and not taking any oral pills, you don't have to worry about the stomach, anything bypassing it. So, great. Ropivirine and proton pump inhibitors can be used together, and you don't need to do any dose adjustments. So aside from proton pump inhibitors or PPIs, other contraindicated drugs remain the same. First, certain anticonvulsants for seizure disorders, carbamazepine, oxcarbazepine, and phenytoin. Anti-mycobacterials like rifampin or rifapentine for TB treatment. Systemic glucocorticoids, one dose of dexamethasone generally okay, but not more than one dose. And we should really think about this in the time of COVID and people being hospitalized for COVID or other respiratory illnesses where they require large doses of steroids. And finally, supplements like St. John's Wort, these would all decrease cabotegravir and rilpivirine concentrations and possibly lead to virological failure.
0: So, it looks like our patient does meet the eligibility requirements for long-acting cabotegravir and rilpivirine. What does she need to know about the practical considerations of this regimen?
1: This regimen Has many practical considerations that she needs to think about before she commits to switching. First, the regimen requires two intramuscular injections, and they have to be administered at the clinic monthly after a one month oral induction period. So patients really must be willing or able to return to the clinic every month for these injections. Second, the injections are administered gluteally. So they're not administered in the arm or anywhere else, but they're administered gluteally only. The first injection after oral lead-in is 600 milligrams or three mils cabotegravir and 900 milligrams or three mils of ropivirine. And so a little bit higher dosages than subsequent injections, which are only two milliliters of both cabotegravir and ropivirine. And it would be 400 milligrams of cabotegravir and 600 milligrams of ropivirine.
0: What if she misses a dose? What kinds of problems could that cause?
1: So it depends on when the dose was missed. If the dose was missed and it's been two months or less since the last dose, you can just resume monthly injections as soon as possible. However, if it's been more than two months since the last injection, you need to reinitiate the patient with a load of 600 milligrams of cabotegravir and 900 milligrams of rilpivirine, and these are both three milliliter injections. Then you can continue to follow up with the two milliliter injections, 400 milligrams cabotegravir and 600 milligrams rilpivirine monthly, just as you were doing previously.
0: Potential side effects from this regimen. What are the most common that your patient needs to know about?
1: So a really common side effect that was seen in all the trials are injection site reactions. And these can include pain, induration, swelling, nodules, and warmth. However, the good news about these injection site reactions is that the median duration is just three days and they generally improve with time. So the more injections you get, the better the injection site reactions get and they're less likely to occur
0: in the future. Before we wrap up this case, Dr. Wansom, I want to ask you about a very recent development in long-acting ART, the approval of an eight-week or two-month, if you prefer, dosing schedule for revere and Rilpivirine. We spent some time talking about monthly or Q4-week dosing. What's different about eight-week dosing that our listeners need to know about?
1: So that's a great question, and this is a really exciting development for long-acting regimens because we're really trying to space out the time that patients need to come into clinic and get treated. And so now, as you said, that there is this Q8 week or every two-month dosing. Basically, the eligibility criteria is exactly the same as the four-week dosing, and the side effects are the same, contraindicated drugs, et cetera. The only thing that's different is the dosing and the time interval in between coming into clinic. And so basically, the eight week dosing, you would just take the same loading dose that you would for the four week dosing and continue that every eight weeks. And so that would be 600 milligrams of cabotegravir and 900 milligrams
0: of rilpivirine every eight weeks. Thank you for bringing us this case and sharing your insights, Dr. Wansom. Let's review what we've been discussing in light of our learning objective identify patients who would be eligible to switch to long-acting cabotegravir and rilpivirine. What are the most important things our listeners need to remember?
1: So number one, as of now, only one long-acting regimen is currently approved, and that's long-acting cabotegravir and rilpivirine. For this regimen, eligible patients include those on a stable antiretroviral regimen with no history of treatment failure and no known or suspected resistance to either cabotegravir or rilpivirine. Intramuscular administration of these injections can begin monthly after a one-month oral lead-in. Patients have to return to the clinic either monthly if they're on the Q4-week regimen or every two months if they're on the Q8-week regimen for injections. Right now, there are no self-administered injections, and all the injections have to be given by clinic staff. They must receive one intramuscular injection in each buttock. Finally, injection site reactions are common, but they're generally not severe and resolve within a median of three days and decrease over time.
0: Thank you, Doctor. And we'll return with Dr. Tanya pawn from Chaiyuan Consulting in Bangkok in just a moment. Health equality, and in particular, racial disparities in healthcare, has become a growing concern and with good reason. The evidence shows that African Americans are disproportionately impacted by HIV, with new HIV diagnosis rates eight times higher than whites. Prescriptions for PrEP also lag behind. What are the barriers to HIV treatment equality, and how can we overcome them? One step towards that answer is Fade Out HIV, an on-demand webinar hosted by Dr. William King, a Los Angeles primary care physician known nationally and internationally for his work in HIV AIDS and his research on racial disparities and access to HIV care and treatment. The CME-accredited Fade Out HIV webinar is provided by DKB Med in partnership with the Postgraduate Institute for Medicine, supported by Gilead Sciences, and is free of charge. Visit fade.dkbmed.com to watch the on-demand video. Welcome back to this eHIV Review Podcast. Our guest is Dr. Tanya Panwansom, Senior Infectious Diseases Consultant at Chayun Consulting. We've been talking about what clinicians need to know when they consider switching their patients to the recently available long-acting cabotegravir and ropivirine. I'd like to turn now to our second learning objective. Describe the potential uses of long-acting injectable HIV agents for pre-exposure prophylaxis, or PrEP, With that in mind, if you would please, Dr. Wansom, take us back to the clinic with another patient scenario.
1: Sure. So this patient is a 21-year-old HIV-negative cisgender male. He has sex with both men and women partners, and he's not always sure of his partner's HIV statuses. Although he says he tries to use condoms consistently, he reports that he probably uses condoms maybe 75% of the time. In the past year, he has been treated for gonorrhea as well as syphilis. And then previously, he says that he did try to take PrEP, but it was intermittent, and he had difficulty remembering to take a pill every day. So with his physician at that time, he made the decision to discontinue just because he knew that he wasn't able to be really adherent to the medication. He has just heard about injectable PrEP, and he wonders if it's an option for him.
0: Let me echo his question. Should this patient be considered for injectable PrEP?
1: So injectable PrEP is a potential option for this patient. Injectable PrEP is indicated to prevent sexually acquired HIV in at-risk adolescents and adults, including cisgender men, cisgender women, as well as transgender women. So his recent history of sexually transmitted infections, like he was treated for gonorrhea and syphilis in the past year, also supports that he's engaging in behaviors that increase his likelihood of developing HIV And recent bacterial STI is actually included in the CDC criteria for PrEP.
0: Review for us, if you would, please, the rest of the eligibility criteria for injectable PrEP.
1: Number one, you must be at least 35 kilograms or 77 pounds in weight. Two, you must be HIV negative. And three, you must be willing to undergo gluteal injections every eight weeks and take an HIV test prior to every round of injections. Finally, there's one consideration that although it doesn't apply to this specific patient, if you've had patients in the past who have serious kidney disease and cannot take tenofovir or oral PrEP, they can take injectable PrEP. So that's really a great option for people who have chronic kidney disease.
0: Well, let me ask you about the HIV testing prior to every round of injections. What specific testing criteria need to be used?
1: the HIV test that's used, it must be U.S. FDA approved to diagnose primary or acute HIV infection. And this means that if you use an antigen antibody specific test, you must still confirm with the HIV RNA or viral load. It's important to know that it's acceptable to proceed with administration of injectable cabotagravir if you initially get a negative HIV antigen antibody combo test while you're awaiting the confirmatory negative HIV RNA confirmation. So I know that many of us do not have point-of-care viral load testing at our clinics, and we need to send it out and wait for the results to come back. And it's perfectly acceptable to get the rapid antigen antibody test that's negative, administer the injection, and then wait for the confirmatory viral load.
0: Talk to us about the logistical considerations around starting injectable Cabotegravir for PrEP.
1: Unlike cabotegravir for antiretroviral treatment, patients can actually decide whether to go directly to injectable therapy or to start with an oral lead-in period to just assess if they are okay with the medication and they can tolerate it well first. So if they want to do an oral lead-in to just try out cabotegravir, the patient will take 30 milligrams oral cabotegravir by mouth once a day for 28 days. And then the first injection of 600 milligrams of cabotegravir should be given on the last day of oral therapy or within three days after finishing oral therapy. Following this, a subsequent injection needs to be given one month following the first injection. And then after the second injection, the patient can transition to receiving injections every two months. So basically, there's initial loading period of monthly injections, even with the every two-month regimen.
0: What happens if a patient misses an injection?
1: So first, if it's a planned misinjection.
0: Hang on, doctor. Excuse me. A planned misinjection? I'm not sure I understand this.
1: Good point. Say a patient is traveling and knows that she won't be able to come into the office when the next injection should occur. This would be considered a planned misinjection because she knows that she won't be making her appointment and she can be given oral cabotegravir to take during the time between injections. So what is a missed injection, actually? Let's go back a little bit. A missed injection or a late injection, it would be an injection greater than seven days from the last planned injection. So if the injections are happening every two months, there's a window period of seven days prior to seven days after that scheduled every two-month injection where it's acceptable to have the injection with no problem. However, if it's greater than seven days from that window period, then the patient should be given, as discussed, daily oral cabotegravir to take. And this daily oral cabotegravir, they can take that for up to two months until they can come back to the clinic and resume injection. So injections should be restarted on the day oral dosing is completed or within three days of
0: the last pill. That's a planned missed injection. What if a missed injection is unplanned?
1: If a missed injection is unplanned and the patient doesn't have any oral dosing to take, then it really depends on which injection is missed. If they're still in the initiation phase, which means that they missed their second injection, you have to look at the time of the first injection. So if the first injection happened less than or equal to two months ago, you administer three mils or 600 milligrams IM as soon as possible. And then you continue with the every two-month injection dosing schedule. However, if they had their first injection and then more than two months have passed and they're like, hey, I'm back. I really want to get restarted on injectable prep and continue my initiation. You have to be like, sorry, we have to restart the initiation. So then what you would do would be first give the 600 milligram injection. And then one month later, you would give the second 600 milligram injection And then you can transition to the every two-month injection dosing schedule.
0: And finally, to wrap up the dosing story, what if the patient has already received three or more injections and then misses one or more?
1: So if a patient has received three or more injections already, look at the time from the last injection. If it's been greater than three months, you need to reinitiate again, and then you can switch back to the every two-month
0: dosing. Uh, Injection site reactions. What do clinicians need to tell their patients?
1: So injection site reactions, which may include pain, tenderness, and swelling, happen to many patients after they receive their injection. However, most of them resolve within three or four days, and their incidence decreases over
0: time. And the drugs that are contraindicated for people taking injectable PrEP?
1: So drugs that are contraindicated include certain anticonvulsants for seizure disorders, These include carbamazepine, oxcarbazepine, phenobarbital, and phenytoin. St. John's wort is contraindicated, which many people take as a supplement for mood disorders. Systemic dexamethasone, so one dose is usually fine. However, more than one dose is contraindicated, and we should really think about this in terms of COVID and hospitalizations. Finally, some anti-TB drugs are also contraindicated, and these include rifampin, rifabutin, and rifapentine. For those patients who may be taking methadone maintenance treatment or opioid substitution, it may decrease methadone concentrations, but no dose adjustment is recommended prior to starting injectable cabotegravir.
0: Well, thank you, Dr. Watson, for bringing us this case. Let's wrap things up by returning to our learning objective. Describe the potential uses of long-acting injectable HIV agents for pre-exposure prophylaxis. What are the key things our listeners should take away from our discussion?
1: So it's really exciting to tell you that one long-acting agent, cabotegravir, is now FDA-approved for PrEP for cisgender men, cisgender women, and transgender adolescents and adults at risk for acquiring sexually transmitted HIV. Number two, patients must test HIV-negative before starting, and they must commit to HIV testing prior to each subsequent injection of cabotegravir. Number three, patients can either choose an oral lead-in period to assess tolerability, or they can go straight to injections, which are administered gluteally. Number four, the first two initiation injections are administered one month apart, and then subsequent injections following the initiation are given every two months.
0: Dr. Tanya Pohn-Wansom from Chayun Consulting in Bangkok, thank you for joining us for this eHIV Review Podcast.
1: Thank you for having me today.
0: For eHIV Review, I'm Bob Busker. To receive CME credit for this activity, please take the post-test at eHIV.dkbmed.com. eHIV Review is supported by educational grants from Gilead Sciences Incorporated, Janssen, and Veve Healthcare. The opinions and recommendations expressed by faculty and other experts whose input is included in this program are their own. This enduring material is produced for educational purposes only. The HIV Review is copyright with all rights reserved by DKP Med, LLC. Thank you for listening.